Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to our penultimate class uh, in our study of the Book of Lost Tales. Uh, I, I hope that you have been uh, enjoying this class. I've you know, been sort of reflecting back a lot as we've... Um, as we've been going, you know, as we're coming here towards the end, because this is, of course, not only the end of our study of this book, but, of course, the end of Volume 2, so I've been doing a lot of kind of thinking back over the Book of Lost Tales as a whole, um, which has been so great to study with you guys. I have been really enjoying uh, the opportunity to go through. I've never taught these books before, and uh, usually, unless I've either written something on a book or taught it, um, I find that I usually, you know, have never really read it closely and carefully as I, as, uh, as I normally love to do. So I love the opportunity to go through chapter by chapter as we've been doing, uh, and look at this really carefully. It's been such a great opportunity to really kind of wrap my mind or attempt anyway, to wrap my mind around what Tolkien was doing, what he was, uh, what he was thinking here uh, in the beginning, where Tolkien's career started to try to kind of orient ourselves uh, in a way which I think is so constructive for, for understanding the whole kind of trajectory uh, of Tolkien's thought. Um, now, I know that the last chapters here of the Book of Lost Tales Part 2 are kind of confusing, and this one is sort of the most famously confusing of all. Um, the good news <laughs> the good news is we're going to put off the truly confusing stuff until next week. Next week, we're going to look at the shift from Ariel to Elfwina and the way in which, as Tolkien... Because, of course, Tolkien didn't only not finish the Book of Lost Tales, but he also he didn't finish and also changed his mind. So he started changing his mind and totally rethinking things and then bagged it. Um, so it's the rethinking that we're going to be looking at next time, and that's where I find anyway it gets very, very difficult to follow. Um, but uh, the part we're going to be doing tonight is comparatively simple, though that's perhaps just uh, 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 merely by point of contrast there. Um, tonight we're going to be looking at the aerial story. Tonight we're going to be looking at... Basically, as far as we can piece it together, with all of the assistance that Christopher Tolkien has given us there, um, how the Lost Tales were meant to end, had Tolkien written an ending, um, what was in his mind, what was the, what was the goal um, of this story, had he finished it, uh, as he initially put it together. So, that's... Um, uh, th that's what we're going to try to get to tonight, and that's why I wanted to separate those two because I really think that these it's important. I, I actually, if there's one criticism I would make of this chapter, my biggest, I wish it hadn't been one chapter. I wish he'd separated them uh, like this because, in my mind, I think these are two very importantly different things. How did his in, how did his initial conception, so far as we can put it together, how did his initial conception for the Book of Lost Tales finish, and then what were some of the new directions in which he was planning to push things? after he abandoned that, or as he was abandoning that, perhaps. So, anyway, so it's the first part, the comparatively simple part, uh, that we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, I have a lot of slides to do tonight, but I also have the ambition of letting you go earlier than I have been. I've been getting really bad about uh, going uh, even longer than usual, uh, of which I am attempting to repent. So I'm going to see if I can succeed in not keeping you forever tonight. So, okay. Let's just 
for a moment here at the beginning, try to remember where we're coming from here. We just did the Arendel story, or rather we kind of pieced together um, what Tolkien seemed to be doing with the Arendel story, and I think it's important for us to sort of notice and remember sort of how the the Arendel story went, and in particular the kind of direction that it went. Um, we'll remember, of course, in the fall of Gon- from the fall of Gondolin's story, the sort of fanfares with which Arendel was welcomed in, right? Not only in the frame story, um, you know, the great tale of Arendel, and this is, you know, this is, oh, wow, it's, it's amazing. Um, but within the tale itself, you recall those, you know, what I was calling messianic passages, those are, and thus was born the hope of the Valar, and, I mean, it just sounded like Arendel was going to be the most momentous character ever to have been born uh, in the Great Lands or Valinor, right? I mean, it was, it sounded like he was a really huge big deal, to the extent that, I mean, remember the reference that I, you know, that I was bringing out, that I brought out sort of jokingly in my title to the Gondolin class, to one of the Gondolin classes, um, that uh, that basically the birth of Arendel makes the whole, turns transforms the whole fall of Gondolin story. It becomes a net gain, right? It's like a net happy story uh, because Arendel is born. So, you know, th- that's where his career kind of begins, I was about to say in conception, which is sort of a pun. Anyway, um, but it, but the career of Arendel, it's hard to look at the... Um, yes, Tom, Tom says, and yet it remained evil. Absolutely, of course. Uh, it's hard for me to describe the career of Arendel as we see it sort of playing out in Tolkien's thought, as, as, as Christopher outlines it in the previous chapter. It's hard for me to describe that in any way other than that like his career kind of fizzles out. I mean, if you just had... The 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 discre- you know sort of the uh, the prose summary right of the direction in which Tolkien was planning to take the the career of Arendel according to that last chapter it'd be pretty darn hard to justify those messianic passages wouldn't it um, I mean at the end of the day what does he really accomplish I mean in, in fact we find the majority of Arendel's career is occupied in yes in voyages you know which are bold and everything you know he's the the you know the greatest mariner and everything okay um but what's he doing where's he going he's going on these sorrowful searches right first after his dad to try to find his presumably dead father and then after his wife right um neither of which search is fruitful Right, so we've got his, him desperately seeking and not really finding. Now there are versions of it you'll remember in which he does get reunited with Elwing. So you know there's like that 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 possibility out there, um, but he never act apart from becoming the greatest mariner and having many successful, in some sense, adventures. Presumably, um, he doesn't actually accomplish anything really. Um, uh, you know, so again, he's he's searching for his dad, and he's searching for his wife, and he is told by Olmo, again, the, in this sort of, like, this quest which has this portentous beginning, right? Olmo coming to him and saying, you must go to Kor. I have, cho- you know, I have selected you. You are the, you know, I sent your dad to Gondolin in the hope that you would be conceived so that this moment might come that you would go to Kor. And then he gets there, and it's too late. And it's too late. Right, even that that line, 
Um, and this was to me one of the, and I don't even think I talked about this last week. This was to me one of the most striking lines in the entire of all of those selections. And Christopher kind of uh, emphasized this. Um, you may remember the line which in the published Silmarillion says, you know, that no mariners from uh, from the Great Lands, from Middle-earth, ever made it back to Valinor, uh, you know, save one. And then in the published Silmarillion it says, the mightiest mariner of song, right? But that's a revision. And in the in these early texts, we see the original version of that, which was, save one. And he came too late. Oh well, sorry, Arendo. I guess that's well. You know, you were all, you almost did something. We don't even know what it was he was supposed to do exactly, right? I don't even know. Um, so, so it's not even clear what he's supposed to be doing. And whatever it is, he doesn't seem to accomplish it. In the end, he has this his final ascension, right? And that in itself has a pretty good mythological pedigree, right? You know, that is, when you become a, a star or a constellation. I mean, that's not always a happy thing. Uh, you know, sometimes it's it's even sort of like a punishment. But at least it, there's, it's, it's, there's some gravitas to that, right? He becomes a star. But even that is a sort of a semi-tragic semi-exile that he's going into, right? Um, in the, and in, in most movingly, I think, in that one version where he crosses the threshold of night and goes into the star, you know, in, into the skies just to continue the search for his wife, um, tragically guaranteeing he can never be reunited with her because he's crossed the boundary that he can't come back from. Um, <laughs> yeah, Tom, Tom Hillman says that's just so Norse, uh, you know, that whole, uh, uh, the, the kind of frustration of the end of that. I, 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 I agree. Um, Yana asks, Yana, that's a great question. Yana says, had he come in time, would the Valar have given their blessing to the excursion? Is that sort of, you know, might that have been what was at stake? Maybe, Yana, I mean, I was kind of thinking that too. The evidence, and it's very indirect, I think, but the evidence for that, I would take from Olmo's words in the fall of Gondolin, right? Um, Olmo suggests to Tuor, and more importantly through Tuor to Turgon that he represents the Valar. Right? You know, he tells Turgon, go do this and the Valar will have your back. Now we were I was kind of joking about the fact that it kind of looks like um, it kind of looks like uh, uh, Turgon was wise to refuse because the Valar obviously don't have anybody's backs, you know, at this point here, um, based, for, based on what we see in these last two chapters. Um, but, but, but there is that implication, right? So unless Olmo is blowing smoke, or unless Olmo is himself deceived, then uh, the, you know, he's saying the Valar will be behind you. Um, so is Arendel the extension of that, and so that therefore had had the elves of Kor not marched forth yet, so that perhaps the wrath and sorrow of the gods was not so much on the idea of them ever venturing forth, um, you know, to, to, to fight Melko and to rescue everybody, but that they didn't wait, right? That the Valor had a plan, and now the elves have gone off and, and on their own, you know, in this sort of active semi-rebellion. Um, whereas had they waited until Arendel showed up, then the Valar would have come with them and approved. I, 
possibly. I mean, uh, we can't. Um, uh, we can't really prove that, though. I mean, like I said, the evidence is really indirect for that. Um, I, it's it's kind of I like the kind of idea. Um, yeah, Nancy uh, Fosberg says, uh, you know, the idea of Olmo as the guy who makes promises he can't keep is also kind of depressing. I agree, Nancy. That's, to me, the most striking thing about the Turgon's refusal in the fall of Gondolin, right? You know, that when we were looking at that, that, you know, you sort of expect when Olmo sends his message and speaks through Tour, and it's very, you know, in, in that story as in every other version of that story, it's a big moment, right? It seems like such a big deal. And then he delivers this message and Turgon says no, and you're like, like oh, how foolish, right, of Turgon to do... Except in the original Fall of Gondolin, Turgon completely wins that, I mean, it, in my mind, he completely wins that argument, right? And old, poor Olmo doesn't have a leg to stand on, and he's like, oh, well... You know, I feel sheepish now. I mean, it's just it's just a little bit odd um, in that way. Um, oh, fascinating. Sarah King says, It's interesting to contrast Eärendil with Túrin. Both of them are influenced by supernatural powers, but Morgoth's curse is the one that actually works. Ouch, Sarah. But, man, gosh. Um, yeah. Uh, Melko, especially in these latter stages, I think less so in Volume 1 of the Book of Lost Tales. The Valar at the beginning, I mean, they still, you know, they have their moments, goodness knows, but they don't look, like, hopelessly incompetent compared to Melko, whereas um, Melko really looks like the only one of the Valar who, who really has his act together um, in this in this latter stage. Um, yeah, yeah. Um yeah, Yana says uh, maybe it wasn't even that they were waiting, that the Valor were waiting on Eärendil, but that Olmo was hoping Eärendil could convince them. I don't know. I, I kind of like that idea, but it even it's even that it kind of seems sort of comical, doesn't it? Right? You know, here's Olmo, right, being like, "Well, I can't talk any sense into these jokers," but uh, Eärendil, maybe if Eärendil, because everybody loves Eärendil for some reason, right? So if maybe if Eärendil comes, you know, he'll sort of tip the scales for some reason. Uh, even that seems like kind of a forlorn hope, doesn't he? Um, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, now, is asking, why is he so important in the Lord of the Rings world? Well, see, Karita, this is to me the mysterious thing. Because um, on the one hand, on the one hand, it seems like okay, that we can see, right? That is, by the time we get to the Lord of the Rings, we do have this idea of Eärendil as the messenger, right? Um, the Eärendil poem, um, which has a really fascinating history, and I can't wait to talk about this in my uh, poetry class this summer, um, uh, if you look at the earlier versions of it, because it's from his poem, Errantry, which is in the Adventures of Tom Bombadil, um, which is like the original Eärendil story, like it's got all the adventures and everything. Anyway, never mind. Um, point is, in that Eärendil poem that Bilbo recites in Rivendell, in the published Fellowship of the Ring, um, it's pretty clear that Eärendil does in fact accomplish something, right? That he has this mighty doom that is laid on him, and he achieves his errand, and he is the one who does in fact, you know, he is the, the, the sort of appointed messenger, uh, 
and uh, you know it, it is kind of all down to him that that uh, the war of wrath happens and uh, and everyone is freed, but yet he cannot return uh, to Middle Earth. So there's that that the, the triumph and the tragedy, um, and uh, and all that stuff. But so that that guy would be a major figure makes sense, right? He's both heroic and tragic, right? The earlier what the earlier one is heroic in a sense. I mean, he's got a he's he's a big deal. I, that he, I mean, like he does all these adventures, right? He's a great mariner. Um, it's not that he's a loser. It's that he doesn't achieve anything in his career. Um, and uh, and it's again, it's to me less clear. So to me, it's that Arendelle has a major place in the Lord of the Rings world. Doesn't seem to me nearly as puzzling as why Arendelle. I mean, sort of fails to live up to the hype in the earlier version um, and sort of what Tolkien was thinking there where was he going with Arendel? Um but uh, anyway so uh, remembering all that just a little context now to come back to the Ariel story because, of course, we're picking up there, in fact, many of the texts that Christopher Tolkien is basing the Ariel story, part of that last chapter on, are the same exact, you know, he's just sort of continuing to the next bit of the outline um, that he was using for the A. Arendel stuff, so there's a lot of continuity, not perfect continuity, as it's all very confusing, um, but there is some continuity anyway between the, the those A. Arendel fragmentary texts uh, and these uh, later, uh, that, that is chronologically the end of the story um, uh, texts. So let's let's do a little overview. I'm going to do a little overview uh, uh, sort of which I'll kind of support by a few of those texts. Christopher does a, a, a I think a, a, a much, remember last time my main focus was trying to bring together the different Arendel versions into something so we can get a sense of the shape of that and the way that the shape of that uh, of the Arendel story changes uh, over time, and I hope that was somewhat helpful. Um, this time, Christopher does a really great job of kind of putting together that kind of a, that kind of conglomerate, you know, that that kind of composite um, story uh, in his notes, which is which is I think very helpful. Um, but let's go through and make sure that we have everything clear and the, the sort of the general timeline. Of the end of the of the Lost Tales story, sort of you know the the end of the world in the Lost Tales uh, version, um, and ma- make sure we have all the vocabulary straight, and look at some things about how that goes. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna look at the basic outline, then I want to look at um, a few sort of particular subplots of that story, uh, and then I want to look specifically at the character of Ariel himself, of his character and his role in this story. Um, and how Tolkien was using that. Okay, so that's going to be the shape of, the, what, of what, what, what we're going to do for the rest of class here. Um, so let's look at the basic outline. So okay, so we, we we're, we're going to pick things up with the 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 marching forth, not the faring forth, but the marching out of the elves of Kor. When the elves elves leave Kor on the shores of Valinor, cross over on foot, apparently. Uh, uh, though we're not, that's not explained how, but it's okay. You'll notice, by the way, I have done very little discussion of geography. Um, I, 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 
in part, especially when it comes to the earlier stuff and how the maps have changed and stuff, I tend to throw up my own hands at the geography. Maybe someday I'll sit down and do a careful study of the geography and try to get a little bit clearer in my mind the way that the sort of the map of Valinor and Middle-earth was changing in Tolkien's mind. Um, but uh, but I, I'm, I'm kind of... I've definitely been dodging that as I've been going through and just kind of taking that uh, sort of aside as much as possible uh, to just focus on the story. But anyway, okay, so 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 the elves march out from Kor and return to Middle-earth because they, they've heard about the Noldoli being captive, and there's Melkor, remember, in the, in the post-Gondolin, um, uh, you know, the post-fall of Gondolin world, right, where we had <clears throat> Melko already ruling over pretty much everybody, right, only Gondolin was the holdout, and now Gondolin has fallen, and there's this little refugee camp, and now that's it, right? And uh, and Melko is 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 the ruler of all, and the elves of Kor hear about this, um, because the birds, right, the birds of Gondolin fly across the sea to Kor and tell the elves about the fall of Gondolin and the and the terrible suffering. So they march forth. Remember, this is when. Uh, Elwing gets captured by Milko, and then she's one of the prisoners who's released by the elves of Kor. Right? Okay. So, so they, so they, they, they march out. They succeed in defeating Milko. So remember back to Olmo's message to Turgon saying, "March out, you can totally beat him." Right? And one of the things I was emphasizing at the time is that we need to remember, in the context of the Lost Tales world, that's not hopeless. By the time we get to the fall of Gondolin. Uh, in the published Silmarillion, it is quite clear, there's like a 0% chance that the elves can possibly defeat Morgoth in battle. That's just not going to happen. Here, that is much more possible. And in fact, we find the elves of Kor come back, and they win. Um, And they bind Melko, and they set the captives free, including Elwing, um, but they don't stay. Right, they, 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 you know, they've, they want to go back, because they get into wars with men, right? Um, and anyway, so they want to go back, but they can't come back to Kor because the Valar are mad at them for leaving. So now all of the elves, not just the Noldoli who will later become the Noldor, but all of the elves, um, the Teleri, the Noldoli, and the Solosimpi, um, are exiled. Right? They marched over to, to, to Middle-earth, to the Great Lands. Now they come back to Tol Arisea. That's what Tol Arisea is about. That's the significance of that island. It's called the Lonely Island because it is the place where the elves of Kor return after their frankly heroic deed of returning to the Great Lands to defeat Melko and uh, bind and free the captives who were bound uh, by him. They bind Melko and free the captives and then retreat. Uh, from the wars with men, and they don't really like it so much in the Great Lands, but they can't go back to Kor, so they settle at Tol Arisea. Okay. Um, now, let's uh, look briefly at uh, at one sort of version of this. This is from Fragment 3. Um, <clears throat> again, this is one of the summaries. March of the Elves out into the world, the capture of Noldorin which is very confusing because he's not one of the Noldoli, right? He's of the he's in the category of the Valar, not he's not an elf. <clears throat> the camp in the land of Willows. Army of Tolkus at the pools of twilight. Something and many gnomes, but men fall on them out of Hisalome. Defeat of Melko. Breaking of Angamandi and release of captives. Hostility of men. 
the gnomes collect some of the jewels. Elwing and most of the elves go back to dwell in Tolerasea. The gods will not let them dwell in Valinor. Okay, so this is one of those summaries of that of that time. We're going to come back to the army of Tolkas. Um, that's one of the subplots I want to look at. As I said, I want to look at their relationship with the Valar, and I love Tolkas's role. Um, I always loved Tolkas in the uh, uh, in the the published Silmarillion, uh, and uh, it's awesome to find uh, Tolkas not only playing a bigger role but this role uh, in the Book of Lost Tales. I think it's really cool. So we'll we'll. We'll look at that a little bit more later on. Same with Noldorin. Um, but again, here we get a glimpse. Of, we, we get a glimpse of these wars, though they do defeat, succeed in defeating uh, Melko, breaking Angamandi, and releasing the captives. But men are still hostile to them, right? So there's this sense in which the Great Lands themselves are hostile. Um, the gnomes collect some of the jewels. Uh, that I, I assume would mean the jewels that Melko stole. Um, uh, two things. One, of course, he didn't just steal the Silmarils, he stole other jewels as well. Two, that might even be referring to the Silmarils. Of course, one thing that's very noticeable, and Christopher emphasizes this, I think, very appropriately, is the fact that the Silmarils are totally not a big deal at the end of this. In fact, not only is the Silmaril not, you know, the source of the light of Eärendil, Right as he's uh, as he's shining in the stars, but the, we even lose the narrative itself. Seems to completely lose track of the Silmaril. Uh, indeed, the only fate of the Silmaril that is alluded to indirectly during the con- the the context of the whole Arendo and Ariel story stuff is that the one that Baron and Luthien took, which was in, which was and ended up with Tinwellant, which was placed into the Nauglifring, which ended up with Baron and Luthien, though it brought the curse upon them, um, was that, of course, it's still bearing the curse, right? The curse of Meme, the dwarf, is still following this. And it ends up at the bottom of the ocean when Elwing's ship is lost on the way back to Tolerasea from the Great Lands. That's the one reference that we get to what happened to it. It's like, well, it sank or something, whatever. Um, so... I don't think that's necessarily... When we see the jewels, I don't think we're necessarily supposed to be equating that with the Silmarils. It's quite likely to be other jewels. But it might be the Silmarils. You know, Melko still had a couple, right? Um, Maybe they do. But I think it's... To me, the kind of um, generic use of jewels there shows that he's not thinking in particular about the Silmarils at that moment, which is kind of interesting. Um, but, uh, But anyway, we know that the gnomes were upset about the fact that Melko stole all their stuff before he left Valinor in the first place, uh, back in the Book of Lost Tales Part 1, um, so that's presumably what it's referring to. Um, there's no reference here to the idea that is... Um, um, uh, there's, uh, the, the, there's no reference here to the idea that was put forward in one of the outlines, the, the Arendo outlines, that is that Elwing's ship sinks and she dies on the way back to Tolerasea there in that sort of last step um but uh but that was where that had happened um uh okay um so okay so 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 we were the marching out so you know the, so th- those are things we looked at in general last time so that part is a little bit of review um but of course Melko's binding is not permanent at all <laughs> right this is not so on the one hand Yes, the elves can, in fact, come back and defeat Melko, so that's great. 
But it's not really a very permanent kind of defeat. It's more of a setback, really, right? Melko again breaks away, this is after the binding, of course, by the aid of Tevildo, darn cat, who in long ages gnaws his bonds. The gods are in dissension about men and elves, some favoring the one and some the other. Really? Why are we choosing between them? Isn't that interesting? Melko goes to Tol Arisea, and well, I guess because they were uh, they were enemies, right? I mean, we, they 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 seem to be getting along about like cats and dogs, I guess. After the elves went back to the Great Lands, come to think of it. But anyway, okay, sorry. Melko goes to Tol Arisea and tries to stir up dissension among the elves between gnomes and Solosimpi, who are in consternation and send to Valinor. No help comes, but Tolkas sends privily Telemectar, Taimonto his son. Now we'll come back to Telemectar uh, later on, too, when we talk about the relationship with the Valar. Um, but, okay, so there's there's Tevildo, Prince of Cats, still around, though lessened, right, uh, by his uh, uh, by his I- I- ignominious defeat by uh, Huon and Tenuvio. But, um, but here he is gnawing away at the bonds of Melko. But notice the kind of thing that Melko is uh, doing, right? Um, Melko is appearing, I, I don't know, I mean, is he doing it in disguise or what? We're not really told, right, how he, in what way he goes to Tol Arisea and tries to stir up dissension. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm kind of assuming that if, I mean, given the fact that they just, like, went on this huge march to, to fight and defeat him, that probably he's not just openly declaring himself and, and, uh, stirring up dissension in that way, probably it's in disguise or something. I mean, this kind doesn't this kind of sound like, you know, a little bit of an anticipation of Numenor, of, of Sauron and Numenor, that is? Um, I don't know. But, um, but anyway, the point is, we can see the kinds of things that, that Melko's further career includes, right? So he's, he always seems to be around... And he's always, um, and he's still active, and he's still causing dissension and problems uh, all over the place. So again, so this is after already a- after they're in Tal Arisea. So again, one of the things that we can take from this, the elves' return to Tal Arisea is not. It's not like a final destination. Um, Tol Arisea is, of course, the same name of the place. I mean, that's where elves are headed off to from the Grey Havens in the Lord of the Rings, right? And because of that, I think, I don't know about you, but I have this association, like, Tol Arisea is like the harbor at the end of the journey, right? I mean, that's, that's, um, it's, that's like the retirement home. You know, your, your, your journey's over when you get there, right? At least, that, again, that's sort of my association. Even though it's not Valinor itself, Nevertheless, it's um, it's it's kind of an end point in the journey. This is certainly not an you know their return to Tolarisea within the context of the Book of Lost Tale story is never an end point. Um, it's only you know it's for them a kind of a it's kind of a halfway house right. And now here the story goes on because now Melko is stirring up dissension and who knows exactly where things are going to go from here. Well. Where things are going to go from here is the desire to return to the Great Lands and fetch the Lost Elves, right? Um, we're going to go... So this and this is the Faring Forth, which has been referred to on multiple occasions. So there's the two trips at the Elves of Kor, 
are going to make back to the Great Lands first. The march to the Great Lands from Kor when they leave Kor and are walled out and prevented from returning to Valinor by the Valar, and they have to only come back to Tol Arisea, the Lonely Isle, when they, after they successfully defeat Melko. But then they're going to go back again, right? That's the faring forth, because there are still elves in Middle Earth and or in you know in the Great Lands, and they're going to go back for them. Um, who are the Lostas? So the first time they were going, because Melko had all of those Noldoli uh, as thralls, right? I mean, he was holding most of the Eldar in slavery, and they, they, they weren't, they weren't going to have that, right? So they went back and defeated Melko and set, set everybody free, but not everybody came back with them, right? The exiles of Kor, including, it seems, the liberated Noldoli, returned to Tol Arisea with them, um, but of course, you ro- you will you will remember that the Noldoli and the gnomes are the same, right? Those are those are those are synonyms. Um, but but there are still lost elves out there. There are still elves remaining in the great lands, and that's what the faring forth is for. It's the second mission of mercy that they're going to go on. So wait a second, who are the lost elves? Let's 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 look at this. So. Lindo's reference, he's just quoted an early passage from the Cottage of Lost Play. Lindo's reference in the passage from the Cottage of Lost Play cited above, to the faring forth of the Eldar of Tol Arisea to find the lost families of the kindred, must likewise relate to the mentions in 5, that's in Fragment 5, of the faring forth, though the time was not ripe, of the rising of the lost elves against the orcs and Nautar and of the island elves and the lost elves at the Battle of Ross. So the island elves would be the elves of Tol Arisea, and the lost elves are the elves who remained in the Great Lands. So the elves who were still in Middle-earth after the exiles of Kor returned to Tol Arisea, the elves of Middle-earth are still fighting, they're, they're now fighting a war against the orcs and the Nautar, right? And so... The faring forth is going to happen. The elves of Tol Arisea are going to return to the Great Lands to help them and to bring them out. Precisely who are to be understood by the lost elves is not clear, but in Gilfanon's tale, all elves of the Great Lands that never saw the light of Kor, Ilkarins, that is what in the Silmarillion will later be called uh, the Sindar, the Grey Elves, whether or not they left the Waters of Awakening are called the Lost Fairies of the World. And this seems likely to be the meaning here. It must then be supposed that there dwelt on Tola Arisea only the Eldar of Kor, the exiles, and the Noldoli released from thraldom under Melko. The faring forth was to be the great expedition from Tol Arisea for the rescue of those who had never departed from the Great Lands. Right? Now it's time to collect for all the elves to be reunited and to join together. So there's You'll remember the references to the Faring Forth, even in the last chapter, in the Arendel chapter, had a kind of apocalyptic atmosphere to it, right? The Faring Forth was sort of an end-of-the-world kind of thing. At least it kind of had that air. You know, like uh, Arendel and uh, Elwing shall never be reunited until the Faring Forth may come, right? You know, that, that, that kind of sense of a thing that happens at the end and is very portentous when it occurs. Um... So here at the Faring Forth, we're talking about the final, presumably, reunion of all of the Eldar and the rescuing of them from... Again, it's a, it's a mission of mercy, again. So we succeeded in binding Melkor and setting the, the captives free. Now we're going to bring all the elves back together again. Okay, so that sounds great, though again, the Valar are sitting on their hands back in Valinor, but, but that's okay, we can get over that. Um... <clears throat> But great, there's... So what's up with the Faring Forth? What's, um, 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, Sarah King says, yes, get those poor elves out of that horrible place, away from the influence of Melko. Oh, wait. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah. Um, it is a little bit dubious there, right? But but here's one other thing, though. We have these references, these prophecies. Again, the Faring Forth is not just like another later incident in this sort of, you know, unending sequence. <clears throat> but it's spo- it, it, it has these apocalyptic elements to it. Um, there are those prophecies associated with the Faring Forth, <clears throat> which suggest that the restoration of all things is going to happen at the Faring Forth, right? I mean, like, great good could come of it. Let's review those prophecies here. The elves' prophecy is that one day they will fare forth from Tol Arisea, and on arriving in the world will gather all their fading kindred who still live in the world and march towards Valinor through the southern lands. March towards Valinor. Will they get in? Well, this they will only do with the help of men. If men aid them, the fairies will take men to Valinor, those that wish to go, fight a great battle with Melko in Erumani, and open Valinor. Laurelin and Silpium, the two trees, will be rekindled, and the mountain wall being destroyed, then soft radiance will spread all over the world, and the sun and moon will be recalled. If men oppose them and aid Melko, the rack of the gods and the ending of the fairies will result, and maybe the great end. And then later on, there's this little rider to the prophecy, right? Were the trees relit, all the paths to Valinor would become clear to follow, and the shadowy seas open clear and free. Men, as well as elves, would taste the blessedness of the gods, and Mandos be emptied. Okay, so this is a... That's a really big deal, right? That's a really big deal. Okay, so... um, The prophecy, if men help them, right? If things go well, the faring forth will not only be the reunion of the elves, you know, uh, Sarah, exactly as you were suggesting, it doesn't sound like an unambiguously good thing, right? I mean, you know, things have not been working out so well, um, so, you know, how do you, how do you think you're going to be improving this, you know, the state of the, of the Ilkarindi, of the lost, you know, uh, elves by, by finding them and by reuniting with them? Well, but, we're, we see what the prophecy is, right? At the time of the faring forth, when they are all reunited, all reunited, they'll march towards Valinor, fight what sounds like a final battle with Melko, defeat him, like, for real, for keeps, right? Then all these amazing things will happen. All the walls come down. The wall between Valinor and the rest of the world crumbles. The trees are relit. The sun and moon are recalled. They're not even necessary anymore, right? So we have the restoration of the trees, the opening of, Val- of Valinor to everybody, elves and men alike. So this is this is a consummation devoutly to be wished. This is what the Faring Forth is, uh, is all about. But... It's not 100% guaranteed, right? In fact, it 
seems like a bit of a long shot, because it depends upon the choice of men. If men side with them and help them, then they're gonna then all the good things will happen. But if men oppose them and aid Melko, then the rack of the gods and the ending of the fairies will result. That sounds bad. Rack is a very dreadful word in these contexts. It means the final end, right? Um, uh, the rack of the gods sounds very sounds sounds very Norse, right? Twilight of the gods, the Valar themselves will be overthrown, and the uh, uh, yeah, the, the Valar themselves will be overthrown, and the elves destroyed. So everything, everything, rests on the faring forth. And everything in that, in turn, rests upon the choice of men. Will everything be restored and made wonderful, and everything opened, and elves and men alike have open, uh, you know, communion with the Valar and entrance into the Blessed Realm, or will everything go down in complete ruin and possibly, possibly the end of the world? Yes, it is Ragnarok, exactly, Sarah. You've got it. Um, there's our situation here. So we can see, I mean, the faring forth, a lot rests upon it. And this is why it's so important not to confuse the faring forth with the mere journey, the marching forth to Middle-earth in order to bind Melko, which seems itself like a relatively big deal, right? Um, but as we see, of course, with the later career of Melko, it's not really a game... I mean, it's, it's, it's a game-changer, but it's not a, a game-ender, right? Um, this is for good or ill... The end of all things, right? Okay, so faring forth—that's a big deal. Um, now, keep in mind, this is the place—the place where we are in the frame narrative of the Book of Lost Tales—is between these two modes. After the marching forth, right? So the 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 elder have already marched out of Kor, gone to. Uh, the Great Lands bound Melko, come back to Tol Arisea, and they've set up at Tol Arisea. They missed Arendo already, right? That's already all happened, um, but the Faring Forth has not yet happened. They're still waiting for the time of the Faring Forth. That's when Ariel shows up and is like, hey, let's tell stories, right? So the frame narrative of the Book of Lost Tales happens in this time between the first marching forth and while they're waiting for the, for the Faring Forth. Okay, um... Meanwhile, the elves are fading and diminishing. Um, and men are dominating. Ultimately, of course, it's not going to go well. Guess which one is going to happen, right? The good one or the bad version of the faring forth? Well, we see um, it doesn't, in fact, go well. You know, all of these grand ideas about the relighting of the trees and everything kind of comes to nothing. We have the Battle of Ross, which may or may not be Brittany. More on that later. Uh, the Island Elves and the Lost Elves against Nautar, Gongs, Orcs, and a few evil men. Defeat of the Elves. The Fading Elves retire to Tol Arisea and hide in the woods. Men come to Tol Arisea and also Orcs, Dwarves, Gongs, Trolls, etc. After the Battle of Ross, the Elves faded with sorrow. They cannot live in air breathed by a number of men equal to their own or greater. And ever as men wax more powerful and numerous, so the fairies fade and grow small and tenuous, filmy and transparent, but men larger and more dense and gross. At last men, or almost all, can no longer see the fairies. Um, 
Nancy thinks that the the sort of mathematical balance between elves and men is weird. It is a little bit odd to kind of uh, specify it in that kind of those kinds of numerical terms, but you can certainly see the general gist of the thing, right? Um, and that is that the presence of me- like men and elves they're not even like cats and dogs. They're like oil and water, right? I mean, it's it's they can't they they don't coexist. The one. Now we don't know that that the presence of elves is inimical to men. Indeed, it seems quite the contrary to be true. But the presence of men appears to be inimical to elves, um, and it, that's what causes them to fade: is the presence of men, like the phys- even the like the breathing of the air of men. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, Arthur, men are dense and gross. Those, of course, are not merely insulting terms, though both of them uh, are. Um, it is kind of funny how, uh, you know, men are larger and more dense and gross, and thinking of the way in which the, both the words dense and gross are used uh, uh, in sort of childish insults nowadays. Um, but, uh, but of course, it, he's speaking in purely uh, uh, sort of technical, uh, even mechanical terms here. Right. Um, it's not just that the fairies grow smaller in stature, that is, shorter and smaller than men, but they become more tenuous, filmy, and transparent compared to the dense and gross men. Um, gross just meaning having a lot of mass, right? Um, they're big and heavy, uh, whereas the elves <clears throat> are small and filmy and transparent. Um, Yes, Nick Marazzo says, "Is this, is it before now or after that that Tolkien turned from the concept of the diminutive little fairies?" The big difference here um, is that Tolkien wasn't yet just rewriting things, right? That is to say, <clears throat> he did not yet merely reject the Victorian idea of the small diminutive cowslip fairies. He doesn't reject it. He is contextualizing it, right? Okay, yes. If you see a fairy nowadays, it probably will be a little, you know, buttercup fairy. It, you know, may or may not look something like Tinkerbell, though I hope not quite so skanky as as Tinkerbell, but whatever. Um, It it, it may look something kind of Tinkerbell-ish if you see a fairy nowadays, but don't make the mistake of thinking that that's, in essence, what fairies are, right? That is a consequence of the... So now I'm going to tell you the whole long and quite tragic story of how it is that the mighty elves and gnomes became the tiny little diminutive fairies that we have come to know. Um, yes, Carita, I said skanky. I find, uh, I find the sexual subplot of Peter Pan more disturbing every time I see the Disney film. Um, the 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 sort of sexual rivalry that that Tinkerbell has going on, uh, I, I just like I, I and coupled with the provocative. Uh, dress and sexual characteristics of Tinkerbell, and I find it disturbing as every time I see it. But anyway, whatever. Um, I <laughs> Patrick says, unlike Balrogs, do these fairies get wings? No evidence of it. I can't think of any evidence of it. 
Maybe. Uh, in some of the poems? Hmm. Don't think so. I can't remember. Anyway, I, I, I'd, I'd have to look through. Um, there's certainly nothing here that suggests that um, they're winged. Um, yeah, um, Nick Marazzo is saying that he, 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 the fairy hero of the poem Errantry had to make his own wings. Um, he courted a butterfly. Um, they had a little, well, he attempted <clears throat> a little romance, but it didn't work out with a butterfly. Um, but yeah, it does seem that there was a, there was, there was an inequality there, um, yeah, yeah. No, Patrick, you're you're right that my Tinkerbell comment, I was thinking of that in the back of my head too, hoping nobody would ask. But uh, but yeah, I can't. I don't. Th- I can't think of any obvious reference unless it's in the poem Goblin Feet. But I'd have to look at it, and I don't have it either in front of me or in arm's reach. Um, uh, much as I would like to develop my telekinesis to my bookshelf across the room, um, it hasn't worked yet. Um, but I don't, th- I don't recall any obvious references, and there's certainly nothing in the context of what we've read here um, that leads us to suggest that. Just that they're filmy and transparent. Um, okay, but again, one of the things to be cautious of: um, the business about the diminutive fairies is a fascinating example of how a lot of modern readers. This is going to sound bad, but I don't mean it that way. Take Tolkien too seriously. That is, Tolkien's own words and comments too seriously. Um, he speaks so adamantly against the association of diminutiveness with fairies and on fairy stories that good Tolkien readers, you know, good modern Tolkien readers get that firmly in their heads, right? It's like there are a few things that Tolkien says that people take really, really seriously, right? Tolkien is anti-allegory. There is no such thing as diminutive fairies, and any attempt to suggest that fairies are or have ever been diminutive is a complete misunderstanding of fairies, right? And you can easily see how one would draw those two conclusions. Tolkien speaks pretty forcefully about both of those things, right? And yet, neither one of them is really entirely true. That is to say, Tolkien's works themselves don't support that. We see him saying those things either at a point in time where he's trying to make that point very strongly for some particular reason, or because his mind has changed. He certainly never suggests their diminutive fairies later on. When uh, Galadriel says, I shall diminish and go into the West and remain Galadriel, I do not think there is any conception at that point in the 1940s and 50s that uh, Galadriel is going to become, you know, four inches high when she says that. But that clearly is part of his concept of fairies in the beginning. Um, So we need to sort of be open to perceiving that and not just kind of take some of his later declarations as, you know, a sort of a, 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 you know sort of written in stone that we have to apply backwards. Um, because it doesn't it doesn't always fit. Um, 
anyway, okay. Uh, so the after the failed faring forth, the elves remain, but now they have no longer any place. Right, Tol Arasea itself has been invaded. Um, they're fading and diminishing because the men are increasing, and the men's breath is bad for them. So, um, uh, uh, so what happens next? Well, there there are still memories, right? Um, uh, so fade the elves, and it shall come to be that because of the encompassing waters of this isle, and yet more because of their unquenchable love for it, that few shall flee, speaking of Tolarisea here, but as men wax there and grow fat, and yet more blind, ever shall they fade more and grow less. And those of the after days shall scoff, saying, Who are the fairies? Lies told to the children by women or foolish men. Who are these fairies? And some few shall answer, Memories faded dim, a wraith of vanishing loveliness in the trees, a rustle of the grass, a glint of dew, some subtle intonation of the wind. And yet fewer shall say, Something. Very small and delicate are the fairies now, yet we have eyes to see and ears to hear, and Tavrabel and Cortirion are filled yet with this sweet folk. Spring knows them, and summer too, and in winter still are they among us, but in autumn most of all do they come out, for autumn is their season, fallen as they are upon the autumn of their days. What shall the dreamers of the earth be like when their winter is come? Yes, Carita, men are gross, dense, and fat in later ages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It just gets worse and worse. See what he's doing here? We see him connecting the Book of Lost Tales to the modern world, right? This is the situation in the early 20th century. People scoffing at fairies, right? These, you know, stories that are only good for, that are only good for children, but some will still have eyes to see them and ears to hear them. Some will remember them. Some will perceive that wraith of vanishing loveliness in the trees, in a rustle of the grass, a glint of dew, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, this is the last legacy of the elves. But again, this is the link between that history of the Book of Lost Tales world and our own modern world. So this was a direction in which he was taking it here. And I think here there's more than just... This is more than just nostalgia, right? There's this, That is, it's not just like... Some people remember the elves, or the stories kind of linger. They have actually affect the world itself. Remembers them. The world itself has been enriched by them. Remember those co- the comment that Legolas makes in the Fellowship of the Ring when they're going through Eregion, right? Um, and uh, uh, you know, Gandalf says like, "Oh, you know, uh, uh, much has to happen before a, before a land wholly forgets the elves when they live there." And Legolas is like, "Eh, this land doesn't really." remember the elves, except the stones. The stones remember them, right? Um, You know, that sense of the land remembering the presence and sort of the blessing brought by the elves. I think we can see in Legolas' comment a kind of an echo of this this early idea. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, So... 
Anyway, okay, so so that is sort of the final state of things. Now we do get these hints that eventually there is going to be the great rack, right? The end of the world is going to come, um, and uh, at the end of the world, Noko will finally be killed. Who kills him? Who's going to kill Melko? Probably. Turin's going to be there, but he's not given the primary role here in these passages. Turin is going to, like, get the assist. Here, anyway. Um, it's going to be... Yes. Well the dude who will later be called Aeonwe, but is now called Fionwe, um, who was the son of of Manwe and Varda. Um, uh, exactly, Matthew. Persian wrote got it. Um, yeah, so Fionwe is going to be there, and he's going to be the him and Tolkas and Turin are going to take him down. But it's Fionwe who's going to kill him. Um, uh, and by the way, destroy the world. The end. Right? Okay, so we know that the world is going to come to an end. It's going to involve the death of Melko, and Fionwe is going to kill him, and Turin, uh, Turin is going to be there and everything. But that stuff is not really fleshed out at all. Because in a sense, of course, this story isn't really interested in that because it hasn't happened yet. Again, this passage here, I think, really emphasizes for me the fact that one clear impulse in this story is to connect it back to our world. And not just our world, but our time. Right? Um, this is one thing I think that changes very significantly between the Book of Lost Tales era of Tolkien's writing and the Lord of the Rings era of Tolkien's writing. In the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, both, Tolkien speaks, makes several references to the fact that these things are happening within our world, right? That we are that our current world that we know is sort of geographically consistent with this world. Um, but it took place at some indistinct and presumably quite distant time. Um, but really uncertain how long ago that was. And there's no real connection to our time. These are just stories out of the ancient past from our world vaguely, right? The connection between the historic, sort of the historical relationship between these stories, the, you know, Tolkien's mythology of Middle-earth and our current world is much more explicitly developed. That connection is made much more clearly in the Book of Lost Tales. And the, 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 I would even go so far as to say that connection plays a much more prominent role in this story. It's part of the point of the stories to sort of show how did we get here to where we are, um, to the relationship that we have, the memories that we have, and the stories that we tell, um, and the role that fairies have in our stories. Why do we still tell our children the, these particular fairy tale, these these fairy tales? Um, where did these kinds of fairy tales come from? These concepts of the fairies. Why do we still tell them to our children in the first place, but yet don't believe them? An, an explanation of the current state of things is part of what these stories are trying to do. The end of the world and the ultimate death of Melko is something which historically hasn't happened yet. Presumably, I mean, as the world having still not ended, uh, you know, we're still in the pre-Great Rack phase, right, of things. And so therefore, it's not going to be narrated, right? Because 
the whole point is to link to the present, not merely to tell the entire history of a completely separate world, because it is emphatically not separate from our world. Um, much more emphatically. Much more emphatically than the later stuff, than the Lord of the Rings stuff. Um, so, okay, let's pause here, uh, and or rather let's go back and look at some of those subplots that I mentioned, um, and that I've been kind of pushing off. First, that relationship with the Valar. So what the heck are the Valar doing? How do we see the Valar acting, and in particular what do we see with their relationship um, with the Eldar? Uh, and what can we understand about what's going on here? Well, let's go back. This is fragment one. It's the earliest thing that um, Christopher Tolkien gives us here. The coming of the Eldar. That's, again, the marching, not the faring forth. That's the, the, the that initial return, the march from Kor to the Great Lands. The com- coming of the Eldar. Encampment in the land of Willows of First Host. Um, but see how prominent the land of Willows is? in these early works. It makes so much sense in this... Con- when you go back and you read Treebeard's reference to you know the Willow Meads of uh, Tassaranon in his, in his poem, um, it makes so much sense that Treebeard would remember them so prominently, you know, that, they, that they're like the first thing that he talks about in his song about how awesome it was to wander around the world in the elder days. Um, they used to be a big deal, but then they, they kind of drop out. Um... Okay, <clears throat> encampment in the land of Willows of First Host. So the Eldar come back and they encamp in the land of Willows. Overwhelming of Noldoran and Valwe, wanderings of Noldoran with his harp. Tolkas overthrows Melko in the Battle of the Silent Pools. Bound in Lumbi and guarded by Gorgamoth, the Hound of Mandos. Um, I've already decided, by the way, that... Um, yeah, Nancy, isn't it awesome that Treebeard remembers all the way back to the first draft? Like, he would, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Anyway, I've decided that um, I, uh, my my family has, like, exclusively really small, adorable lap dogs, um, and uh, we have a wonderful dog now whose name is Abby. I didn't name her. I inherited her from my sister. But when next we do get another adorable little poodle mix lap dog. Um, I, I'm going to propose that we name it Gorgamoth, uh, the Hound of Mandos, because that is awesome. Uh, so anyway, I just um, I, I think that uh, that would be that would be great. Um, you know, maybe a little Yorkie or something named Gorgamoth. Um, that's my that's my goal. Uh, yeah, I think that would be that would be absolutely fantastic. Anyway, um, okay. Uh, but what a name, though! Isn't it great? Release of the Noldoli, war with men. So okay, now the the release of the Noldoli is, I, I believe, when they're you know they, they've overthrown Melko and they've released the Noldoli. So you know the captives of Melko. That you know the reason they came back in the first place. Okay, war with men as soon as Tolkas and Noldorin have fared back to Valinor. Noldoli led to Valinor by by Egalmoth and Galdor. Okay, okay. Um, uh, don't be confused. Don't get the Noldoli and Noldorin confused. Especially since Noldorin has the word Noldor in it, which is doubtless how you probably think of the Noldoli, uh, which makes it double confusing. Noldorin is a person, is a dude, and he's he's one of the Valar, he's one of the people of the Valar, he's with Tolkas, right? Tolkas and Noldorin come to help, right? Um, and uh, Noldorin 
goes back with Tolkis to Valinor after the successful war. Right? So, okay, so what do we get here in this first glimpse? This is the earliest version now of this stuff that we're getting in this chapter. Um, it sounds at first like the Valar are helping, right? Um, after all, it's Tolkas who overthrows Melko. This is not just a, the matter of, you know, the elves of Kor marching back and defeating Melko. Tolkas comes with them, right? That Tolkas, who is the, the you know, the greatest warrior, uh, you know, the greatest fighter, anyway, um, of all of the Valar, the strongest of all the Valar, he comes and he overthrows Melko. Great, excellent. So they do this with the help of the Valar. Um, well, not necessarily, right? As Tolkas, uh, apart from his, uh, you know, with uh, Noldoran apparently acting as his uh, as his wingman here, we don't get any reference to any of the other of the Valar contributing. It is not obvious to me that this description of Tolkas coming back is indeed in conflict with what was said back in the A. Arendel stuff, right? Um, and this is one of those that's continuous with some of the A. Arendel stuff. This is not just a random fragment. Um, so we got the earlier A. Arendel stuff, which said that uh, that the Valar were wrathful and sorrowful when the elves marched out and didn't approve and slammed the doors of Valinor against them. Um, but, so there are kind of two things. On the one hand, again, we don't know, the fact that Tokus came, he could be non-compliant. Right, it doesn't prove that the Valar in, it does not prove that the Valar approve of what the elves are doing here, um, but we do get that reference, which is, as far as I noticed, unique in all of these later materials, <clears throat> unique to this fragment that the Noldoli are led to Valinor. <coughs> that is, that they don't just have to go back to Tolerasea; that they're in fact welcomed back to Valinor. That one sentence at the end of this scrap, Noldoli led to Valinor by Agalmoth and Galdor. Um, if he was considering the idea that they would be welcomed back, he seems to have pitched it, right? At the very least, we can say, the opposition of the Valar to the endeavor of the elves here in the marching back to the Great Lands seems to be not absolute, Right? They're not absolutely ab- opposed to it. Well, that's a bonus, I guess, um, in that Tokus comes and helps them, and they are allowed back afterwards. But their being allowed back vanishes. This is the only reference to that. Um, it seems by far the more consistent story in Tolkien's mind in this section is that they're not allowed back. Right? That suggests to me that Tokus's action, and he is mentioned more than once, right? Um, Tokus coming back and helping them... Um, is more consistently alluded to than this other idea. So I don't think that that is a similarly isolated idea. Therefore, the trend that it sort of seems to me, and I have to admit, the, st- the version of the story that I quite prefer is that Tolkas is flying in the face of the rest of the... That the other Valar, um, presumably with the exception of Olmo, I'm guessing, but I don't really know what the heck Olmo is up to, anymore. But anyway, um, the A. Arendel chapter uh, cured me of thinking I knew what the heck Olmo was trying to do. Uh, but anyway, um, Tolkas at least says, no way, you guys can sit over here and sulk if you like and slam the door of Valinor in their faces. I'm going to help. Um, and presumably because that way he gets to 
he gets to wrestle Melko, which he quite enjoys. Um, so uh, anyway, yeah, I, I am kind of biased towards that particular reading because I think it's cool and I and I like Tolkien, so uh, uh, I think it's uh, I think it's pretty cool. But Patrick, I agree. Patrick, with your assessment, uh, Patrick Summers says, I can totally see Tolkas getting all worked up and wandering off to kick Melko's butt without any support or permission. Um, yeah, yeah, that, I, that's exactly that's exactly what I see, too. Um, uh, yeah, Brianna, is, uh, Brianna Melvin is pointing out the sort of recurring trend of warriors and hounds uh, facing Melko. Um uh, yeah, we got Gorgamoth here. We had Huan before. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so so this is one hint that we get that although the Valar oppose them, they're not you know they're not united in this. And this is something that we can see more clearly, I think, consistently throughout the Book of Lost Tales. Um, the Valar are not nearly so united a front. Uh, as they are in the published Silmarillion. Um, so it's the less surprising to see Tolkas kind of flying off the handle and doing his own thing. Um, but not only does he come himself, he also sends his son, Telemachtar. Now we've talked about how the gods have children, how the Valar have children uh, in the Book of Lost Tales, so it shouldn't shock us to find Tolkas having a son. Telemachtar and Ingil pursue him, that is, pursue Melko, and they remain now in the sky toward it, and Melko stalks high above the air, seeking ever to do a hurt to the sun and moon and stars. Eclipses. Meteors. So we can still see the evidence. When there is an eclipse of the sun or of the moon, this is Melko attacking, you know, launching an attack on one of those bodies. And when we see meteors shooting down across the sky, it's because, um, it's because Melko is chucking things down messing things up. <clears throat> he is continually frustrated, but on his first attempt, saying that the gods stole his fire for its making, he upset the sun, so that Erwindi fell into the sea, and the ship fell near the ground, scorching regions of the earth. The clarity of the sun's radiance has not been so great since, and something of the magic has gone from it. Hence it is, and long has been, that the fairies dance and sing more sweetly, and can the better be seen by the light of the moon, because of the death of Urwendi. This is one primary meaning of the magic sun. It's not the ex- it's not the exclusive sense of it, right? Um, that is sometimes the magic. There are places where the magic sun seems to be associated with the relighting of the trees. But it, what seems that sort of the dominant trend here is that the the sun <clears throat> has been, you know Erwendi died. I guess anyway, she was knocked out of the boat. The sun ship, uh, and she, and so now the sun is less magical. In what sense, um, uh, in what sense is it less magical? That's a little bit unclear to me. Um, the idea of the sun coming too near to the ground and scorching regions of the earth is a common one. Um, I can't help but think of the myth of, uh, of, of Phaeton driving the chariot of the sun um, in, uh, in Greek mythology. The son of, a, you know, this, the, the son of the sun god. Um, human son of the sun god. Um, so again, we, so we see that kind of common mythological idea. But anyway, we keep going. Orion is, the only imi- is only the image of Telemectar in the sky. 
Varda gave him stars, and he bears them aloft that the gods may know he watches. He has diamonds on his sword sheath, and this will go red when he draws his sword at the great end. Um, the constellation Orion is called the sign of doom um, in... Isn't that in... It's in the Silmarillion, right? I'm remembering that. It's called the sign of doom. <clears throat> Never really explains what that means, but this appears to be what it means. It's the sign of doom in the sense that when the swords of his sheath turn red, it's the end of the world, right? The end of the world has come. It's time for the final battle uh, with Melko. But now Telemectar <clears throat> and Gil, who follows him like a blue bee, ward off evil, and Varda immediately replaces any stars that Melko loosens and casts down. Um, okay, so you can notice here the Valor aren't doing nothing, right? So not only do we have Tolkas coming to help out, help out and sending his son who helps out, we also, you know, with the, the, the participation of Varda in this shows that the Valar are still paying attention, right? <clears throat> to me, the kind of mysteriousness of it. Here's what's mysterious to me. And one of the things which seems to me most to justify, or perhaps to put it differently, most effectively to contextualize the sort of vanishing of the Valar over the course of the... Like, you notice in the published Silmarillion, you got the early parts, the Valar are heavily involved, right? And then as soon as we get the exile, as soon as the, the scene goes back to Middle-earth, the Valar are still referred to occasionally, but they're less and less involved until by the time we get into the Second Age and the Third Age, they're barely even alluded to anymore. And it's easy to come to the conclusion that, oh, the Valar don't do anything anymore, right? Except... It's pretty clear in the Silmarillion, and even in the Lord of the Rings itself, that that isn't really true. That they actually do still do things. But we have that sense, which works, I think, very well in the later versions, in the Silmarillion and Lord of the Rings, um, that as the story departs from Valinor, and we're focusing on the things of Middle-earth, we no longer really know what the Valar are doing. It's not that they're doing nothing, it's just that we no longer see them doing things, right? So we, we don't know what they do, and it requires a little bit more faith on our part to trust that they're doing stuff, or to perceive that they're doing things. Again, it's not that they're not, it's just that we're not seeing them, right? Um, they vanish, too, in these earlier stories as well, but that works less well. That is to say, it's harder to understand that the Valar are not doing nothing. They really seem to be doing nothing for most of the time uh, in the Book of Lost Tales, and that's in part because of the, the kind of modulation that Tolkien makes in his later writing. We talked about this a lot when we were doing Book of Lost Tales Part 1, how the sort of level of the narrative in the Book of Lost Tales is sort of looking eye-to-eye eye at the Valar. They are very sort of humanized characters like us. It, it, the story is told sort of from their... not exactly from their point of view, because um, it's the elves telling the stories, but sort of on their level. The, the, the narrative sort of treats the Valar as peers, if you see what I mean by that. Um, in the published Silmarillion, the Valar are above the, the narration all the way along, right? There's no sense of familiarity in talking about the Valar. They are remote and a little bit 
inscrutable um, from all the way through the published Silmarillion. So when they fade out, they just become more inscrutable and more remote, right? Um, there's a there's there's a kind of continuity there, even though our perspective is shifting. But it's easier to think that it's just our perspective shifting. In the Book of Lost Tales, they really kind of seem to be doing nothing most of the time. But here we have some evidence that <clears throat> they're not doing absolutely nothing. So there we are. Um, uh, that's, I guess, <clears throat> something. We get this one other reference to the Valar, which I find really fascinating. Because um, we know that, that in the end, right, with the prophecies about the faring forth, either the ways to Valinor are going to open up completely... Are they going to be? Are the Valar going to completely cut things off? Right. Um, yes. Good. Oh, James, thank you for helping me with the quote. I was confused, and I often do that. It's the Valakirka, the sickle of the Valar, that is called the sign of doom. But James, you quoted the line I was thinking of: um, "Menomakar with his shining belt that forebodes the last battle that shall be at the end of days." And when it says that, it's really unclear. Like, how does that? How does you know Orion forebode the last battle, right? Um, but we see that the roots of that is in this is this older conception that he's actually going to announce it, right? That he's he's going to be literally a sign of the time of the coming uh, of the last battle that shall be at the end of days. Thank you, James, for for helping me with that. Um, Anyway, okay, so so where do we see the Valar in the end? Here's that one last reference to them in this in these to the Valar in these materials. The gods now dwell in Valinor and come scarcely ever to the world, being content with the restraining of the elements from utterly destroying men. <laughs> Thanks for that. That's cool. They grieve much at what they see, but Iluvatar is over all. Ah, okay, so. It's not that they don't care, but they don't do anything. And that one reference at the end contextualizes they're not doing anything as an act of faith on their part. Right? Iluvatar is overall. Iluvatar's got this. Right? He's taking care of it. We're gonna sit back here and watch and grieve, because this isn't going well. Right? Uh, but Iluvatar's got this, right? We don't see the Valar acting in their role as stewards, essentially, of the world. Much more active stewards. Um, you know, acting as the, you know, the lord under Iluvatar of all things. You know, the lords under Iluvatar of all things. Um, yeah, but I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not gonna be, uh, I shouldn't underestimate, you know, the blessing of the restraining of the elements from utterly destroying men. I mean, that would that would be awful, of course, if men were utterly destroyed by the elements. Uh, but um, uh, but still, it doesn't seem they're actually really very terrifically involved. Um, and Sarah, you're right. Star replacement is another important contribution. Um, uh, so we do we do have this, you know, the the the. You know, it's like planting a tree when you cut one down, uh, you know, when a star falls. Uh, 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 you know, Varda puts a new one up. So, um, 
it's um it's it's pretty it's pretty good um uh yeah mary rose it does seem a little strange that's not i mean it's hard to it's hard to really respect what we see of the Valar. I mean, other than Tolkas, who's awesome, as usual, and Olmo, who at least is trying, I guess. Um, uh, it does seem a little bit hard to really respect them in the end here. Uh, Mary Rose is like, well, you know, uh, I guess elemental control's enough, right? I mean, hey, like, are they being utterly destroyed? No. Well, then, you know, they should pipe down. If uh, you know, As long as they're being prevented from being utterly destroyed, what do they have to whine about? Um... This is not an attractive picture uh, of the Valar, um, and I don't. It's, I, I, that to me, it's a fascinating element, and it's one of the things that I think ultimately, again, when we look at, you know, the 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 way that these stories are going to shift, the way that this whole narrative is going to shift as Tolkien goes back and rethinks it and rewrites it later on in his career. One of the biggest and most noticeable thing is that shift in the attitude towards the Valar and that shift in the nature of their relationship with things and the way that the stories relate to them. And I think that the... my It sort of seems to me that the way that the story of the Valar kind of fizzles out here at the end of the Book of Lost Tales, and here I am using that same expression again that I used of Arendel before, um, but the way that they just kind of diminish and do nothing and get unsympathetic... Um, it seems to me a sense in which Tolkien, in, in the later versions, is saying, "Okay, let me come in again, and we'll we'll try it. We'll 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 do the Valar again, but we're going to do it differently this time because that doesn't really seem to work out." Um, okay, so my second subplot: the first was the relationship with the Valar. The second, uh, Melko's escape and later career. So more on that. Okay, so um, we talked about some of this. When we, for instance, we talked about his war in the sky. But wait, how does he get up in the sky? So he's bound um, uh, by uh, the elves with the help of Tolkas. Um, but then he gets out again because that that stinking Tevildo gnawed his bonds and let him go, right? And uh, and then he um, he causes he's causing trouble in Tol Arisea and everything. Um, so what happens? He's, uh, yes, Yana, he's climbing a pine tree. That's exactly where he's going. Telemectar of the Silver Sword and Ingil surprise Melko. Remember, they're sent by Tolkas. Surprise Melko and wound him, and he flees and climbs up the Great Pine of Tavrabel. Wait, the Great Pine of Tavrabel? What the heck is that? Oh, wait, we're going we're gonna to be told. Before the Inwir left Valinor... Balaurin, Pelurian, that is, who will later be called Yavanna, gave them a seed, and said that it must be guarded, for great tidings would one day come of its growth. Here's a seed, right? It's going to grow into a great tree, and one day, really important stuff is going to come from this, so be very careful with this seed. But it was forgotten, and cast in the garden of Gilfanan, and a mighty pine arose that reached to Ilway and the stars. So, the great tidings associated with it turns out to be the escape of Melko, right? Um, he uses the pine tree to escape from Telemectar and Ingil who are pursuing him and <clears throat> he uh, uh, and he uses that to get up into the sky and that's why he's up in the sky and he's causing trouble and he's throwing down stars and he's tipping over the sun uh, and uh, attacking the moon and doing all sorts of all sorts of things. Um, 
yes, Arthur, I too couldn't help but think of of Jack, right? Um, less Jack the Giant Killer than Jack and the Beanstalk here, right? Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, Gerald Michael points out, great tidings, but not necessarily good tidings are going to be associated with it. Or maybe it would have been good tidings had they in fact minded it and not just chucked it out into the garden. Um, yeah, Carita s- s- uh, says that climbing a pine tree seems like a curiously undignified escape for the darkest Dark Lord ever. It does, and of course that's what I couldn't help but think about when I was subtitling this slide. Uh, it does kind of put out of the frying pan and, and in, in, into the fire in a kind of a different context, doesn't it? Um, but anyway, um, I... Yeah, it does seem a little bit, well, undignified, yes. But, again, all all the Valar are less dignified now than they will become later on. Um, and we see Melko just doing more mischief, right? There's, there is not the same sense... That, you know, think of the way that Morgoth talks in the published Silmarillion, right? You know, when he... Um, you know, he's all this land I name unto myself, right? You know, and those kinds of things... Melko just doesn't talk exactly, at least not consistently, talk like that. Um, he, uh, he's, he's, just, he's less dignified. I'm not quite sure he takes himself less seriously, but it almost seems like he takes himself less seriously. Um, he wants to rule the world, but when he can't, he's content to just do mischief. Um, uh, you know, and that's sort of the way it is. He, he, so he is treed here, <clears throat> um, but he escapes. So on the one hand, it's a good thing, I guess, because although he did escape by the pine tree, he is now only able to cause harm up in the sky. So, like, you know, so he casts down a star every now and again, you know, usually nobody gets hurt. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, you know, Nick, that's a great comment. Nick Marazzo says he's acting more like Loki than like the Dark Lord. Um, yeah, yeah, actually, that seems uh, to me a fair thing to say. Um, and Genie says he sounds like a, like a kind of a poltergeist in the sky. Um, yeah, certainly a kind of a minor, a minor thing. Um, but, uh, so yeah, but, but I think that, you know, Nancy, the comment that you made, Nancy Fosberg says, you know, it's interesting that we're, we're kind of right back to the, uh, dog versus cat stuff. That is that, that sort of level of story, right? Um, that we got in that section of the Tenuvial story. Um, yet, yeah, this is not exactly what I would call an explanatory... Well, no, it becomes an explanatory myth, right? You think about the kinds of questions that are implicitly being answered by this story, right? Why do stars fall? Why do we see shooting stars? Why do sometimes the sun and the moon go all funny, right? What's happening to them? What causes that to happen? It's Melko up there, messing with things. But wait, how did Melko get up there? Oh, he climbed the Great Pine of Taverbell, right? Why would he climb up the Great Pine of Taverbell and go to make trouble in the stars instead of ruling down here? Oh, because he was chased up the Great Pine of Taverbell by Telemachtar of the Silver Sword and of the Silver Sword and Ingil, right? You see how the, the, the logic of these stories is the logic 
of that kind of explanatory mythology. And I've referred at several points to how that kind of story, that kind of explanatory myth, is very much a part of the, the kind of mythology that Tolkien is telling in the Book of Lost Tales. That element of mythology will drop out almost completely by the time we get to the published Silmarillion, but it's still really prominent in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, and we see it's not fading as we get towards the end of the Book of Lost Tales. These later sections, um, you know, this, this, these later outlines and things that he gives draws more attention even than in most other places to those kind of explanations. Um, including even more vague things like this. The evils that still happen come about in this wise. Notice the question, the, what's the question that's being answered? If Melko has been banished up beyond the skies, why is there still suffering in the world? Right? Well, it comes about in this wise. The gods can cause things to enter the hearts of men, but not of elves. Hence their difficult dealings in the old days of the exile of the gnomes. And though Melko sits without, gnawing his fingers and gazing in anger on the world, he can suggest evil to men so inclined. But the lies he planted of old still grow and spread. Hence, Melko can now work hurt and damage and evil in the world only through men, and he has more power and subtlety with men than Manwe or any of the gods because of his long sojourn in the world and among men. Okay. Yeah, that, Nancy, I agree. That image of him gnawing his fingers and gazing in anger is a, is a, is a, is a wonderful one. Um, but, uh, but anyway, he can still work evil in the world, right? It comes from men um, because he can still suggest evil thoughts to the minds of men, right? So now this is how this is why things happen the way they do now. Again, we can see that kind of explanation. And James, you're right, we do still hear echoes um, of the end of the Silmarillion here. Notice again, though, the gravitas, the, the alteration in gravitas, right? He's bound and then thrust through uh, you know, into the void <clears throat> in the Silmarillion. Um, though his lies continue to fester, right, and he still can kind of influence things. Um, he is more active and more direct and has far less gravitas here uh, than he does in the later versions. Um, okay, but speaking of explanatory myths, the biggest and if it's the first time you're reading the Book of Lost Tales, I don't doubt most shocking, most eye-opening moment. Um, in fact, I found it completely mind-blowing the first time I read this book. Is the identity of Tol Arisea with England, right? The rising of, rising of the lost elves against the orcs and Nautar. The time is not yet ready for the faring forth, but the fairies judge it to be necessary. Okay, so it's time for the faring forth. They obtained through Olmo the help of Uin, that is, Uin is the huge, gigantic whale. It's the, the mother of all whales. So they hitch Uin up to the island. And Tol Arisea is uprooted and dragged near to the great lands, nigh to the promontory of Ross. A magic bridge is cast across the intervening sound, uh, that is the English Channel, 
Ose is wroth at the breaking of the roots of the isle he set so long ago, and many of his rare sea treasures grow about it, that he tries to wrench it back. So as they've hitched up Uin the Whale to Tol Arisea, and Uin the Whale is dragging Tol Arisea back across the sea, right up to near but not quite touching the Great Lands, they get into a tug-of-war between Uin the Whale and Ose, who's trying to pull the island back, with the result that it rips off a part of it, right? The western half of the island breaks off and is now the Isle, the isle of Everin, which is, of course, Ireland. That's why England is two islands and there's that little chunk of it that's broken off of it because that's the bit that Ose pulled back on. See how that works, right? The very origin of the island of Ireland was a tug-of-war between conflicting powers, and thus was the destiny of the nation of Ireland laid. Um, anyway, um, so... Yeah, exactly. Patrick Summers says, Irish history in one paragraph. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Um, Tol Arisea is... Great Britain, right? It is the isle is is the island um, that will later be called England. Um, this is an explanatory myth in the most explicit way, right? Why is England an island? Why is the why is the English Channel there? Why is Ireland separated from the rest of Britain in this way? Um, this is the explanatory myth, and it gives the significance to England, right? Um, following up on that, um, and thinking back to a, a passage that similarly talks about the fading of the elves, but also the memory that the land retains of the elves, this is why England is so special, right? Um, this is the summary <clears throat> of Courtier. This is the prose preface to the poem Cortirian Among the Trees. We talked about it some at the beginning of the, the, the Lost Tales Volume 1 class. Um, uh, yeah, Tom uh, Hillman says it, it's almost... Uh, let's see, how would I pronounce that, Tom? Uh, Herodotian? Herodot right, it's just like Herodotus, right? Um, yeah, 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 it does sound almost like that. Um but anyway, okay, here we are. Very beautiful was Cortirian, and the fairies loved it, and it became rich in song and poesy and the light of laughter. But on a time the great faring forth was made, and the fairies had rekindled once more the magic sun of Valinor, but for the treason and faint hearts of men. So you remember that didn't pan out. But so it is that the magic sun is dead, and the lonely isle drawn back under the confines of the great lands and the fairies are scattered through all the wide, unfriendly pathways of the world, and now men dwell even on this faded isle, and care not, or know not, of its ancient days. Yet still there be some of the Eldar and the Noldoli of old who linger in the island, and their songs are heard about the shores of the land that once was the fairest dwelling of the immortal folk. And it seems to the fairies, and it seems to me, who know that town, and have often trodden its disfigured ways, that autumn and the falling of the leaf is the season of the year, when maybe here or there a heart among men may be open, and an eye perceive how is the world's estate fallen from the laughter and the loveliness of old. Think on Cortirion and be sad. It is there not hope, 
really? Is there? Um, I, an interesting question. Is that a rhetorical question? I, we're not shown very much hope, actually, through all these stories. Um, yeah, Arthur, yes, Cortirian, um, Cortirian is identified with Warwick, with Warwick yes. Um, um, and Arthur is asking, is not by chance either of the town associated with Avalon or the one associated with Camelot? No. No, they're not. Um, Winchester is the one associated with Camelot, uh, and Glastonbury is the one associated with Avalon. Um, so no, it's not identifying those things. Um, but, but it does kind of explain them, right? That is to say, like, <clears throat> the Book of Lost Tales would seem to suggest the reason that there are all those stories about the Isle of Avalon and its identification with Glastonbury um, are because those are faded memories of the story of Tolarasea. That, yes, there is a magical Isle of the Fairies which has been lost, right? But to which you can kind of you know, but but we, to which you might be able to return. These are memories of Tol Arisea, right? Memories of the true history um, of the elves. Um, this is why we get the stories of King Arthur, right? Um, and again, those two are memories of, you know, they're, they're echoes of the older times. The idea of this sort of magical realm of Logris, right? The magical realm of King Arthur. Um, it's, it's a memory. It's a shadow of what came before. This is why England is so special, right? This is why England is so magical. Because it used to be the Isle of the Fairies themselves. Um, and I, I'll never forget when I first read that. When I first read, you know, the the identification blew my mind that he was actually identifying, saying that Tol Arisea literally became England. You know that 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 is in fact the history. This is a sort of mythical history of England. Amazing. Now let's uh, finally move on to our hero here, to Ariel. Here's Ariel's story. Remember, Ariel is our narrator who's shown up at the Cottage of Lost Play and is the one who's been hearing all these stories uh, and telling stories. So who is he and where does he come from? Ariel's original name was Otter, but he called himself Wafra, Old English Restless Wandering, and lived a life on the waters. His father was named Eo, Old English Horse, and Eo, this is why the Eo, so many of the, Ro, the names of the Rohirrim begin with Eo something or other, because Eo, that element, means horse. Um, and Eo was slain by his brother Beorn, either in the siege or in a great battle. Horses and bears don't get along. Otter Wafra settled on the island of Heligoland on the North Sea and wedded a woman named Quen. And they had two sons named Hengist, or excuse me, Hengist and Horsa. I should pronounce Hengist the way that Tom Shippey says we should. Uh, Hengist and Horsa to avenge Eo. Then sea longing gripped Otter Wafra. He was a son of Eärendil, born under his beam, and after the death of Quen, he left his young children. Hengist and Horsa avenged Eo and became great chieftains, but Otter Wafra set out to seek and find Tol Arisea, say Uncuthaholm, the unknown island. In Tol Arisea he wedded, 
being made young by limpe, here also called by the Old English word lith, naimi, ead, ead gifu, nisa vaire, and they had a son named Heorenda. Okay. Um, two very, well, several very significant things here, right? First of all, note the historical context of Ariel, right? Ariel, a.k.a. Otter Wafre, is the father of Hengist and Horsa, those famous conquerors who do indeed go on to become great chieftains, uh, and indeed to invade England. Um, <coughs> uh, but um, uh, okay, so so that's one really significant thing. So notice we have Ariel tied explicitly to English history by being the father of Hengist and Horsa. Okay, um, and but then he seeks he goes to seek out and finds Tol Erasea, right? Because he's a son of Eärendil, that is a wanderer, somebody who is born under the beam of Eärendil and therefore has a, a desire to go to sea and to travel. Um, so his wife dies, he leaves his young children, but he marries again uh, in Tal Erasea. Now here's where we get some interesting things that we didn't learn earlier on in the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 1. We do get references in the frame narrative in the earlier parts of the story that he wants to drink limpe. Limpe is this magic drink of the elves, um, which only the elves are supposed to be allowed to drink, um, which the Valar give to them, um, which Tolkas gives to them, because of course. Uh, and he really wants to drink it, right? That is to say, we, we can see here the two things which demonstrate Ariel doesn't just visit Tol Erasea. Um, he goes native on Tol Erasea, right? He leaves the land of uh, the the lands of men, even leaving his two sons, uh, his two later to be famous sons, Henderson Horsa, uh, uh, behind. Um, but he um, he he he's leaving the human world behind, and he's joining himself to the Eldar of Tol Erasea. He wants to drink limpe, which will bind him to them and make him have to. St- you know, the the conditions are he's got to stay there no matter what. Um, he can never leave Tola Erasea again if he drinks of Limpe. And we learn here, for the first time, that he actually marries uh, an elvish wife and has a half-elvish son, Heorenda. So, that's a big deal. Um, let's uh, keep going. So what about his wandering? What do we get about his wandering? Well, I think it's very interesting that in the poem the reading notice I've, I've I've not been talking too much about the poems because we don't have time tonight but the one pa- I do want to do one little poetic passage and that is the end the third section of the poem called the song of Ariel where he describes his wandering so I think it's important to understand the context uh, of his wandering here there fell my father on a field of blood, and in a hungry siege my mother died, and I, a captive, heard the great sea's flood, calling and calling, that my spirit cried for the dark western shores, whence long ago had come sires of my mother. 
and I broke my bonds, faring o'er wasted valleys and dead lands, until my feet were moistened by the western sea, until my ears were deafened by the hum, the splash, and the roaring of the western sea. But that was long ago. And now the dark bays and unknown caves I know, the twilight, the twilight capes, the misty archipelago, and all the perilous sounds and salt wastes tween this isle of magic and the coasts I knew a while. One really important piece of context that we get from this poem, him being going to sea, being born under the beam of Arendel, doesn't just mean he kind of has wanderlust. Right, like he just really enjoys traveling. Right, he is a wanderer in a more profound sense. In fact, we learn in this poem, in a sense, much more like the wandering of uh, uh, of the speaker of the Anglo-Saxon poem called the Wanderer. Um, that is, an exile, somebody who has lost everything and is wandering because he no longer has a home, because everything everything else has been destroyed. But this wanderer, this wafra here, is not just an outcast. It's not just somebody who has lost everything. He has. But combined with that is this calling and calling of the great sea's flood. His spirit crying for the dark western shores. Right, he wants to find the you know. So there's something within him that calls out to that, but it's in the context of loss, right? That he seeks that in the first place. Um, okay. Ariel's story, though. So it sounds that that first outline sounds happy enough, right? Um, I mean, you know, if you don't lament his separation from his two soon-to-be famous sons over much, um, <clears throat> he seeks out to find Toerasea. He finds it. He settles down there, right? He gets to drink limpe, gets to marry an elvish wife, he has a half-elvish son, uh, and lives happily ever after, right? Except not. Ariel comes to Tol Erisea, sojourns at Cortirion, goes to Tavrabel to see Gilfanan, who's the lord, he's the senior dude there in Tol Erisea, and sojourns in the house of a hundred chimneys, for this is the last condition of his drinking limpe. Of course, Gilfanon is the one ruling. Merrily Tarinki is ruling, but Gilfanon is the senior dude. Christopher explains this. Okay. The last condition of his drinking limpe uh, is uh, that he's got to sojourn in the house of a hundred chimneys. Right? He's got to go to Taverbell and see Gilfanon. Gilfanon bids him write down all he has heard before he drinks. <clears throat> First thou shalt write the Book of Lost Tales down, and then I'll give you limpe to drink. Ariel drinks limpe. Gilfanan tells him of things to be that in his mind, although the fairies hope not, he believes that Tol Erisea will become a dwelling of men. Gilfanan also prophecies concerning the great end, and of the rack of things, and of Fionwe, Tulkas, and Melko, and the last fight on the plains of Valinor. Ariel ends his life at Tavrabel, but in his last days is consumed with longing for the black cliffs of his shores, even as Merrill said. So, he is consumed with longing, right? Merrill told him that if he drinks limpe, he cannot stay, or he cannot leave, right? He must stay, but she warns him, you're going to want to return to your homeland. You're going to be longing, although you long to leave it and to come here, um, and the drinking of limpe seems like the ultimate fulfillment of that desire that you had throughout your earlier life, 
in fact, you're going to find a great longing for your homeland grow within you, and you will be tormented if you drink limpe. And indeed, he ignores that, and he does, and he is, in his last days, consumed with longing for the black cliffs of his shores. And believe it or not, that's the happy ending <laughs> for Ariel. He gets three endings, right? We get three different Ariel endings. <clears throat> this is the first one. He ends his days in Tol Arisea, consumed with longing for the black cliffs of his shores. The end. That's the comparatively happy ending. Um, uh, there's a worse one. Here's number two. Number two is he's an eyewitness to the faring forth and to the final battles. When Uin the whale drags Tol Arisea back, Ariel's there. Right, so soon after Ariel comes back, they're like, "Okay, pony up, everybody! It's time for the faring forth. Uh, it's time, you know, to roll the dice, and we'll see what happens. And hopefully, men will make a good choice, and all the prophecies come true. But they probably won't. So anyway, <clears throat> we're going back to the Great Lands. They have the Battle of Ross, um, that promontory of land near which they end up parking Tall Arisea. Um, this is why Christopher Tolkien speculates that the uh, Ross, the promontory of Ross, is Brittany." Um, and, uh, but, so he's an eyewitness at the battles at which the elves of Tal Arisea lose, uh, to the men and orcs and dwarves and trolls. And he gives an eyewitness account. So this is from the epilogue, what, what, what's labeled the epilogue of the Book of Lost Tales, um, that Tolkien wrote at one point. Um, I get told first person from Ariel's point of view. Already fade the elves in sorrow, and the faring forth has come to ruin. And Iluvatar knoweth alone if ever now the tree shall be relit while the world may last. Behold, I stole by evening from the ruined heath, and my way fled winding down the valley of the brook of glass. But the setting of the sun was blackened with a reek of fires, and the waters of the stream were fouled with the war of men and grime of strife. Then was my heart bitter to see the bones of the good earth laid bare with winds, where the destroying hands of men had torn the heather and the fern, and burnt them to make sacrifice to Melko and to lust of ruin. And the thronging places of the bees that all day hummed along the winds and whortle bushes, long ago bearing rich honey down to Tavrabel, these are now become fosses and mounds of stark red earth, and naught sang there nor danced but unwholesome airs and flies of pestilence. Really vivid imagery here, the replacement of the uh, the thronging, humming, rich honey-bearing bees uh, becoming the, the uh, lurking place of unwholesome airs and flies of pestilence uh, is, I think, particularly evocative. So he witnesses the faring forth and the destruction of all hopes, and watches the elves to which he has joined himself fade around him. The end. That's number two. Here's number three. It gets worse. From very rough jottings, this is Christopher Tolkien speaking, it can be made out that Ariel was to be so tormented with home longing that he set sail from Tol Arisea with his son Heorenda against the command of Meroli Turinki. But his purpose in doing so was also to hasten the faring forth, which he preached in the lands of the east. Tol Arisea was drawn back to the confines of the great lands, but at once hostile peoples named the, Gu- the Guithlin and the Brithunin, and in one of these notes also the Rumhoth, the Romans, 
the Ruhmhof, the Horde of Rome, invade the island. Ariel died, but his sons Hengist and Horsa conquered the Gwyddelin. But because of Ariel's disobedience to the command of Meryl, in going back before the time for the faring forth was ripe, all was cursed, and the elves faded before the noise and evil of war. An isolated sentence refers to a strange prophecy that a man of good will, yet through longing after the things of men, may bring the faring forth to naught. In the third version, it's ev- it's all his fault. Yikes! Yeah, Arthur says he's Turin. Yeah, basically, basically, um, he. he 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 is the the faring forth was always to be hinging on the choices of men and here in this later glimpse it hinges on Ariel's choice and Ariel screwed it up he precipitated the faring forth not through malice through his weakness right his desire for his home and his so he he goes to his home despite the fact that he's told if he drinks limpe he can never return and he begged and begged to be given limpe but then he breaks the the ban anyway and does return um but then he preaches the faring forth in the lands to the east he goes around telling people the faring forth is coming the elves are coming right so he's trying to do good i think that the word preaching seems in context like a good thing, right? Not that he's like warning people, like, beware, take up arms, everybody, the elves are coming, the elves are coming, right? That's not what he's doing. He seems to be trying to, you know, raise some excitement, right? Let's raise awareness about the faring forth and make sure everyone's ready so that, you know, mankind as a whole is going to make a good choice when the time comes. Except, um, it doesn't, right? Um, it doesn't work out that way at all, and in the end, his actions bring the faring forth to naught. Ouch. In this way, through this last version, Ariel seems to become a kind of representative of men, right? That his own choice is sort of a, a you know, sort of a synecdoche for the, the overall choice to turn against the elves by men even though he himself is not has no ill will towards them and isn't trying to betray them. All right, well, on that depressing note, uh, I'll let you go. This is the story of Ariel. This is, you know, this doesn't mean that that's definitely where it was going to go. As we see three different versions of where it's going, but they're all a little depressing. Um, the one last question that we haven't answered that I would like to is, what is the concept of the book itself? It's called the Book of Lost Tales, right? So presumably, the fact that we get a frame narrative like this suggests that, and especially since this is Tolkien, we need some kind of explanation for how did this book that we're reading come to us, right? How is it that Ariel's stories that he wrote down after uh, you know hearing them from the elves in Tolarisea, how did they come to us, and how, how is it that we're reading these? Um, I want to look at that, but I'm not going to keep you up extra late tonight. We'll start next time with that. And uh, then we'll go on and talk about Alfwina and uh, Tolkien's change of thought. So uh, reread as much as you can of that last chapter. If you read it for this week, awesome. Read it again. Um, I think it'll be a little easier this uh, the next time, you know, if you come back and read it again next week. And then we will 
try to sort everything out next week and come to a satisfactory end uh, of our study of the Book of Lost Tales. Um, Thanks, everybody. I look forward to uh, sorting this stuff out with you next week. Bye now.